Chapter 39. The Rich Young Rulers. Commences with a quote by Jesus Christ. Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. The rich young ruler's story draws me in like a moth to a flame. I so don't want to read it, yet I can't resist. It speaks directly to my heart, in a cardiac arrest sort of way. Matthew, Mark and Luke all thought it was an important enough event to record it in detail. Every time I dive in deeply to study the context, the background, and the possible meanings of the story, I come up gasping for air. Would Jesus really ask him to do that? I dive down again and again, ever hopeful that I can find a less volatile interpretation of the message. No, it can't possibly mean what it says. Just when I think I've found a pocket of fresh air where I can relax and regain my capitalist energies... A statement by Kierkegaard rings in my ears. The Bible is very easy to understand. But we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. Me? A scheming swindler? No wonder Kierkegaard was known as the disturbing Dane. I need to get to the bottom of this. Maybe Jesus was serious when he asked the young man to go and sell all that he had so that he could freely follow Jesus, unfettered by his first century equivalents of trusts, companies, real estate, share portfolios and bank accounts. But could Jesus be asking the very same thing of me, of you, to give it all away? There are plenty of theologians and gospel commentators, not just those from the prosperity gospel, who think that literally selling everything and giving it away would be a most absurd 21st century interpretation of Christ's encounter with this rich young man. There are those who argue, and I believe rightly so, that the rich young ruler was too attached to his assets, and that Jesus, who loved him dearly, knew that the only way he could become a true follower was to sell it all and give the money to the poor. For this particular young man, a single individual at a given point in history, the only way he could open his heart's door to Christ was through a complete liquidation and distribution of his assets. The mountain of blessings that God had entrusted to him, whether due to his apparent obedience to the law or for some other reason I don't know, had cluttered up his heart and he couldn't open the door. We know that he desperately wanted to open his heart's door to Christ. Mark tells us that he ran up to Jesus a humbling act for a wealthy first-century Jew, and he fell on his knees in front of Jesus, another sign of his desperation. His ensuing request was equally genuine. What must I do to inherit eternal life? But, on hearing Christ's request, he went away sad because he had great wealth. He went away sad because he had been greatly blessed. His blessings had become an eternal curse because he had chosen to take his heart away from the giver and fill it with the gifts instead. But is Jesus asking me to do the same? Surely this truly was a specific request for a specific person at a specific time, wasn't it? Yes and no. Let's just quickly remind ourselves of Christ's do not worry message to the huge crowd of listeners in Matthew 6, where he described the lilies of the field as more beautifully dressed than even Solomon, 
the world's first trillionaire. The people in the crowd were a mixed group from all walks of life. Dedicated disciples, die-hard pagans, Pharisees, curious onlookers. Christ didn't ask this fruit salad gathering to sell all and give it to the poor. He told them not to build up treasures on earth and that they cannot serve both God and money. He encouraged them to place their faith in the Heavenly Father who would supply all their daily needs. But, and here's the thing that surprised me even after years of studying the rich young ruler's story, he wasn't the only one who Jesus asked to sell your possessions and give to the poor. Luke chapter 12, 22 to 34 has a similar do not worry message to Matthew 6, 25 to 34, but it has a very different audience and a very different conclusion. No longer is Jesus talking to a massive crowd. He's talking to his disciples. After telling them how God supplies all the needs of the ravens and the lilies and even the fast wilting grass and how they don't need to worry about where their food or clothes will come from, he says this to his disciples. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Hmm. Am I a disciple of Christ? Are you? And then, just in case I have found some way of interpreting the rich young ruler's story, and even the word disciple to exclude myself, two chapters later, Christ is at it again. This time his audience is described as great multitudes, probably a similar sort of crowd to those we read about in Matthew 6. So what did he say to this seething mass of people from all walks of life? Luke 14.33 tells us, So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is starting to hurt. And Jesus didn't stop there. In Matthew 13.44-46 he said, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. The most lenient interpretation that I can still maintain as being somewhat true to the text is that Christ may not be asking us, you and me, to sell and redistribute all our assets before we follow him. But, and again it's a big but, if our assets and the many activities involved in acquiring them, enjoying them and caring for them are getting in the way of us truly following him and maintaining our relationship with him, then yes, we do need to sell up and give the proceeds away. So are they? Are my things, my blessings, getting in the way of my relationship with God? Are yours? For me to be perfectly honest, I must answer yes. There's something about money and an increasing net worth that too often gets between my heart and God's. I shouldn't be surprised. Jesus himself told me this in Luke 16:13. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It's not directly relevant to this chapter, but note the Pharisees' response to Jesus' comment in Luke 16. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others 
but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Am I living like the Pharisees of old? Am I blindly being led by the money-centric society in which I live? I think I know people who seem to be able to balance their increasing assets with their growing relationship with God, though they may well be fighting a secret battle too. There are a few examples of such folk in the Bible, people who were able to manage, not store up, significant wealth, and yet also maintain a truly vibrant, growing relationship with God. I must hasten to add, though, that a careful study of these rich Christians also shows that they were actually just allowing themselves to be used by God as funnels for disseminating his blessings to those around them. Abraham comes to mind, and Job, Hezekiah, Lydia, and King David most of the time, Joseph too. But I've battled my affluence for years, and my only solution is to get rid of it, to walk the road toward poverty. I'm already on the road. I don't think the journey will end with Melinda and me living under a bridge, but if the last few years are any indicator, we will certainly have far fewer material assets a decade from now than we do today. Not because we squandered God's gifts on a self-centred lifestyle, God forbid, but because we did our spirit-led best to use his gifts to support the spreading of the gospel and to try to give them back to Jesus in the person of the poor and needy. I'm also reminded of the fact that continual giving from a generous heart, according to the Lord's promptings, doesn't actually lead to poverty anyway. It's actually by not giving that we're led to poverty of soul. Proverbs 11.24 tells us, One person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. And I actually don't want to end up living under a bridge. That would bring a whole new set of temptations that I would really struggle with. I think Agur got it pretty right when he gave his request to God in Proverbs 30, verses 7 to 9. Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonour the name of my God. So we're off on a journey. Remember those homes that we kept building, living in and then keeping, Greek style? Well, we've started selling them and putting the proceeds into God's work. We've started emptying our trust and bank accounts. Even at 50-50, our Teresa Gecko scale had left us seriously blessed. So, in recent years, we've started tipping the scales towards 60-40 and 70-30, and it feels great. And our personal relationships with Jesus are stronger than ever. How far does God want us to go down this road toward poverty? All the way? I don't know. But it seems that every pound we shed lightens our hearts and opens up a whole new world of even greater blessings. We'll also have a lot fewer responsibilities and less stress as we get closer to the simple life that we once knew. It's ironic that we used to see the simple life as merely a stage to get through as quickly as possible on our way to success. But now that we've tasted success, we're keen to get back to that simple life. Just as David Busso enlightened us with his economics of enough, we're now moving from more than enough back to a healthier balance. In the process, we are being more blessed than ever.
not necessarily in our bank accounts, but in our hearts. It truly is more blessed to give than to receive. Help, we're being blessed again. But I shouldn't be surprised. In Luke 6.38 we read, Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Giving leads to blessings. Leads to giving, which leads to blessings, which leads to... Giving is not only a duty, it's a privilege. Giving is living.